Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Borrowway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Consequence Podcast Network. You know those little black and white warning labels on some album artwork that say parental advisory, explicit lyrics. They feel a bit quaint in the modern media ecosystem, but when they were introduced in 1985, they caused quite a stir. They were a byproduct of a committee called the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC. It was co-founded by Tipper Gore, then-wife of then-Vice President Al Gore, and its stated purpose was to give parents greater control over children's access to music it deemed dangerous because of themes like violence, drug use, sex, and the occult. Because everybody knows how pervasive occult music is, right? This committee faced censorship accusations and pissed off a lot of artists, especially because the criteria used to determine a lyric's level of offense were so deeply subjective and oftentimes totally arbitrary. The PMRC was big news. They successfully lobbied for high-profile congressional hearings about a list of songs the committee found objectionable, and they pitted uptight 80s senators against a real hodgepodge of recording artists. There was testimony from the likes of John Denver, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister, and Frank Zappa. The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretational and enforcemental problems inherent in the proposal's design. The PMRC sparked conversations all over the world about the power of lyrics, and many cities held local town halls to debate the issue. And some of those town halls were televised, including one on a local Seattle news show. Can you guess who turned up to that meeting to publicly decry the proposed use of warning labels on music? A 19-year-old Lane Staley. This is back in his glam metal days, and his personal style was quite something. Do yourself a favor and Google Lane Staley PMRC. He's got this gigantic, bleached, spiky half-mullet that was held up by a year's supply of hairspray, and he's wearing these huge sunglasses with blue lenses. It really has to be seen to be believed. Um, I play for a rock band called Sleaze, and... 
I mean, there's enough controversy on our on our name, more or less than our songs. You know, we've just signed a local with a local record company. I don't feel there's anything objectionable about any of our songs. It's pretty ballsy for a teenager to speak out publicly in support of artistic freedom and against censorship. But when you think about the meaning behind each of the songs on Dirt, it makes total sense. They're full of this raw honesty. And that kind of openness can only develop when artists are free to express themselves in whatever way they see fit. Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell wrote songs that were deeply personal, that spoke from the pain and grief they'd experienced, and also documented some of their most intimate relationships with family and friends. But at the same time, they wrote songs about universal themes and did it so brilliantly that millions of fans heard themselves in the lyrics. In this episode of The Opus, we are talking about the stories that inspired these incredible songs and all the ways in which Dirt's poetry resonated with Alice in Chains fans and their fellow musicians. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Adam Unz, and this is The Opus. Dirt has a centerpiece, it's gotta be Rooster. A fan favorite, it was the highest charting single from Dirt, peaking at number 7 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. It stands out on the album because it's the only song that tells a story from the perspective of anyone outside of the band. And that someone is Jerry Cantrell's father. Sometimes you think, what the hell are we doing here, right? I'm watching my friends die. His dad, Jerry Sr., had done multiple tours in Vietnam and brought those experiences home with him when he returned to the States. It greatly affected Jerry's whole family, and his parents split up when he was a small child. He was raised by his mother and grandmother, only seeing his father on occasion. He was estranged from his dad throughout much of his young life, and Jerry built up a huge resentment for him. But as he grew older, he began to see his father in a different light, or at least tried to see things from his perspective. And he wrote Rooster as a way to put himself in his father's shoes and imagine how the war would have affected him if he'd been a soldier. When Jerry finished the song, he played it for his dad, who said the lyrics were spot on and captured the spirit of his time in Vietnam perfectly. And, and Rooster, that's Miles Kennedy from Alterbridge. What was really wonderful about Rooster was the video that accompanied it. I believe that was Jerry's father. That made it really heavy. Rooster built a bridge between Jerry and his father, and they were able to form a stronger relationship than they ever had. Jerry Sr. even appeared in the video for Rooster, talking about Vietnam in a candid interview with director Mark Pellington. That video is legendary. You know, like, I remember seeing that for the first time, just going, wow. It was authentic. It's, it's not just somebody writing, you know, telling a story. It's like, this affected this person's life, and... So it, it adds a lot of gravity to the situation. The video blends documentary footage of Jerry and his dad with a dramatization of the song's story. Imagine the power of those images combined with lyrics like this. Walking tall, machine gun man. 
It's extremely powerful stuff. Those lyrics and that video from Rooster really resonated with people whose fathers had fought in the war. Here's Jacoby Shaddix from Papa Roach. And that track Rooster, that was one of those things that I really had a struggle with understanding my father's story as a Vietnam veteran. And uh, I know that that song was inspired by a veteran of sorts. It almost gave me like a look into my father's life, even though the song wasn't about my dad. And uh, I love the way that they just wrestled with the, the darkness, but then put it into this music that just drew you in and, and just, it made you feel. There is no doubt that a whole generation of kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s had this wall between them and their dad's time in Vietnam, myself included. I never really spoke to my dad about the war outside of passing references. I didn't want to upset him, but I really wanted to understand what had happened to him. And Jerry Cantrell found a way through his music to reach across that divide in a way his dad could receive without feeling backed into a corner and without having to reveal any details of painful memories. Jerry's insight into the human condition and his empathetic approach to his father's life also appealed to a much broader audience. People who had no connection to the war at all were able to do what Jerry did, to put themselves in the shoes of a soldier fighting a war halfway across the world from home. But even when the meaning of Alice in Chains' songs wasn't as explicit, their fans could still have varied interpretations of the lyrics and see themselves in the music. That was especially true with Dirt's two big ballads. I, I love the whole record, but the, the slower ones, have always been like Down in a Hole and, and Rain When I Die have always spoke to me. Dallas Green has always been struck by Rain When I Die and Down in a Hole, because they're slower and more introspective. They're both songs that are sung with raw emotion pouring out of them, and they really stand out on an album full of heavier, rockier tracks. Yeah, Rain When I Die really is my, is my jam of jams. It's like, I just think it's so weird. It's driven by this crazy riff and bass line, but then Lane is singing dramatically over it. Like, again, Down in a Hole being a perfect example of it, right? Like The way it starts is just so beautiful. It could be an Enya song or something like it's just like this really dramatic, beautiful acoustic, you know. But even with all that beauty, there is such darkness. And that frequently gets attached to Lane Staley because of his personal struggles and his death. Fans have a tendency to bend the meaning of the songs on Dirt to match their personal experience or their preconceived notions about the band. They hear lyrics from Rain When I Die like this.
They hear those lyrics, and they assume they're about depression or mental health struggles, and they associate the lyrics with Lane. And other people didn't get as specific with the meaning behind the words, but instead described listening to them as an emotional experience. Rain When I Die was another one of those songs. That's Charlie Benanti from Anthrax. Oh, dude, I could listen to that song all the time, and, and it just takes me to some other place, you know what I mean? Because I think we've all been to a place where, you know, fuck, man, it's raining. And I don't mean that that it's raining on top of you, but the weight of things is just like, man, I think it's going to fucking rain, you know? Drawing your own conclusions about the meanings of songs is only natural. I connect to music in a lot of ways, but that connection is strongest when I can project my own emotional state onto the songs I love. Their lyrics are able to articulate my feelings in a way that's much more profound and heartfelt than I can. And I think everyone does that, right? It's so easy to project your own life experiences onto the poetry of song lyrics, so we make assumptions about their meaning to fit our own personal narrative. And the Alice in Chains song that most often falls prey to those assumptions is Down in a Hole. Heavy, heavy stuff, right? Down in a Hole is a sad song. Like, a really sad song. It might be the softest, gentlest song on the album, and it evokes this visceral, emotional response before you even pay attention to the lyrics. But when you do focus in on the lyrics, it hits even harder. They conjure up this picture of a person who's being crushed by their worries and their sorrow. And everyone assumed that Jerry was writing about Lane battling his demons, writing directly from Lane's perspective. This is Joel O'Keefe from Airborne. I remember thinking, like, what, what is he singing about? Like, I didn't know about drugs or depression and things like that, but it sounds like down in a hole. It's like, it's almost like when you're having a bad day and you put down in a hole on, it's like he tells you that it's okay to be down in a hole or something like that. You get back out of that hole again. And some people thought he was speaking about depression. This is Jacoby Shaddix again. Down in a hole, that's just a down in a hole. It's just like, it was a reflection of this darkness that I had in myself, that it was starting to awaken me to, to those feelings. Like, these are real feelings. These, I got to find a way to work through this shit. Music would be a great way. So it inspired me to, like, tackle my demons through music. So why has the meaning of this song remained this ambiguous? Part of what makes Down in a Hole so great is that it's open to interpretation. Fans and fellow musicians have posited all these different theories over the years, and the consensus was it had something to do with inner darkness and fighting to stay afloat in a sea of emotion. Well, they were all wrong. Or at least mostly wrong. Jerry Cantrell wrote Down in a Hole about his then-girlfriend. After they released their first album, Facelift, Alice in Chains spent the better part of a year on the road. They were away from their friends and their family, and in Jerry's case, romantic partners. And that distance put a severe strain on those relationships. 
Remember, this is a long time before cell phones existed, video calling wasn't available, and the internet was still just a glimmer in Al Gore's eye. So staying in touch over long distances was really, really hard. Down in a Hole was really about the cost of fame, the grueling nature of life on the road, and the way both of those things contributed to the erosion of Jerry's long-term relationship. I know, not quite as relatable as general depression and sadness, but the true meaning of the words is almost irrelevant. Some fans, like Mark Tremonti from Creed and Alterbridge, don't think about the true meaning at all. I'm more of a melody guy. You know, the mood the, the mood the song sets. Like you said, could you damn, damn the river? Maybe I don't give a damn anyway. I was just like, yeah, maybe I don't give a damn anyway either. But I stuck to each line. It wasn't the whole, I don't know what that song's about. I don't know what Ten Bones is about. The important thing was the individual experience. The way the listeners received those lyrics and interpreted them. Damn That River is a really loud, raucous track featuring plenty of Jerry Cantrell's legendary molecular structure rearranging guitar. The general consensus was that it was a song about pure, unadulterated hate. If it was based on a real person, it was someone who Cantrell had excised from his life. Someone who had committed a terrible transgression that could never be forgiven. But the real inspiration for Damn That River was an argument between Jerry Cantrell and Allison Chain's drummer Sean Kinney. Well, I say argument, but it was actually a pretty brutal physical fight. Legend has it that Kinney broke a coffee table over Cantrell's head. Pretty wild story, and not at all what anyone would have expected the song to be about. In fact, even Kinney didn't understand its true meaning right away. Cantrell explained it to him further down the line, and... Even though the physical and emotional wounds from the fight had healed, Kinney was still faced with the prospect of rehashing the drama over and over again in front of thousands of people. It's like a hard rock version of Stevie Nicks singing Go Your Own Way for decades, knowing that it aired the dirty laundry from her acrimonious breakup with Lindsay Buckingham. But again, the true meaning didn't really matter to the fans. Damn That River is an aggressive, brutal song full of anger, and it allowed angsty teens all over the world to funnel their own pent-up aggression into those words. And for those who are still hankering for the one right interpretation, Jerry Cantrell himself has said that he deliberately made the lyrics a little fuzzy. He wanted people to find themselves in the music, and with the exception of Rooster, none of the songs on Dirt dictate how the listener should interpret them. He compared them to paintings. Even the songs that seem to focus explicitly on Lane's struggles leave plenty of room for interpretation. Songs like Junkhead, Dirt, and Godsmack drew from Lane's personal history, but they also hit on so many universal themes. On Angry Chair, many people assumed that Lane was talking about going to rehab, but his lyrics could represent anyone's pain and anger.
the brilliance of Alice in Chains music. The band wrote songs that invited their audience to share in their anger and frustration and joy, to place themselves at the center of each of those stories, and use the music as an outlet for everything that was on their mind at the time. It takes a lot of technical skill and a lot of practice to write eloquent songs, but Alice in Chains knew that real connection, real staying power, can only come when you allow yourself to be so emotionally vulnerable that each of your fans believes the music was written about them. episode of the opus we close out the season by taking a look at what came next after the seattle explosion and how dirt's power echoed through three decades of rock music for the consequence podcast network and sony legacy i'm adam Unz, and this has been the opus everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out it's the what podcast thanks